Hello, welcome to the Legendarian Green Team. I'm your host, Hurin Fan. I have with me here today, Kipton. Hello. Ashaman. Hello. Black Diamond. How's it going? And Mr. T. Good evening. Today, we're going to talk about Malazan. If you're a fan of fantasy, you've probably heard of it, both good and bad. You've probably heard it's difficult, daunting, rewarding, and has a die-hard fanbase. We're a group of fans here to talk about how we feel about the series. Hopefully by the end, you can get a feel for what it's about and if, it might, if you might be interested. We'll talk about common criticisms, things we don't care for in the series, what sets it apart, why we loved it, and finally, who we would recommend it to and not recommend it to. Uh, let's start with the common criticisms. Uh, I guess since I'm hosting, I'll start first. Uh, believe it or not, guys, I've actually heard that uh, some people say the series lacks depth. <laughs> really? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I find that hard to believe. It's uh, definitely one of the deeper series I've I've read. I, I don't know how to respond to that, so I feel like going off on a complete tangent and saying the thing I hear about it the most is Gardens of the Moon, you have no idea what the hell is going on in any of it. That's probably mm -hmm. fair. It's just constantly <laughs> meeting new characters, constantly going to new places, hearing lots of things about the magic system that's never explained, and uh, some people feel like Erickson uh purposefully prevents the reader from understanding what's going on by withholding information for no reason definitely heard all that yeah i've, I've heard that as well that's actually my second one i said it's too disjointed yeah um that's not a criticism without merit um but i think it's also just part of the charm and style of the series you know um it drops you in media res into like right in the middle of the action um actually right before one of the biggest battles in the series um, without holding your hand. And it, you know, it treats you like an adult who, you know, is really willing to dig in deep to the story. So if that's not your thing, then that's, that's fine. But um, it's really refreshing to not have a lot of exposition going on. It treats you like an adult who's uh, already invested in the story. Yeah, which is not easy. I, I grew to appreciate it, though, simply because it's more natural to have uh, the series kind of explain as you go on instead of just uh, pages of exposition right at the beginning, explaining the magic system, explaining the world. You kind of learn about it as the characters do, but also why would these characters that know a lot about the world just talk about all the things they already know? Um, but I think it, it makes for a very interesting series where you learn bits and pieces here or there. And you can uh, get invested in how much you become more comfortable with reading it books and books later. Yes, um, it's definitely a case where there's a lot of showing rather than telling going on. Mm -hmm. mm. For, For sure. Part. And I think there's a lot of initial investment. If, if, you, if you're going to start reading Malazan, you need to have a motivation for it because, well, in some cases, if you don't feel motivated at all and you start gardens, then okay, you might drop out pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of which, how many of us really did struggle through gardens for the first time? I'd say so. Yeah, I, I had a rough time. I did yeah. not struggle, um, but I never liked Crocus. Never. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel the same way. <laughs> least favorite character, even by the well, end. Crocus is your three-year younger cousin who's trying his best but failing, and you're so, sort of in family parties. You 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 hide your face, you just facepalm time, and oh, Crocus, please. <laughs> <laughs> but he also tries to do some very ridiculous things, some very some very uh, audacious things, even. For sure, he's maybe not great at it, but. And he's got a good heart. <laughs> yes. My thing with Gardens is, I mean, with, with, all, with series in general, uh, no matter how complex it is, how complex the plot is, if I could anchor myself with certain characters that I'm interested in, then um, I can enjoy the book. But I think one other criticism for Malazan and uh, Gardens 
more specifically is the characters themselves. Um, I don't think Erickson did the best job with them in Gardens. I think they, I think a one criticism that does have merit is how they're kind of hard to distinguish. Um, and that is one thing that I do understand when people say, but then as the series goes on, they, they get more developed. You get other characters that are much better. Um, but I think that as long as you anchor yourself with a couple characters, like for example, if, if you really look forward to the rake scenes, then you can just read just for those. And that's like almost enough. Or, you know, maybe the, the Lauren and Tool scenes. I really enjoyed Lauren. Yeah, same. I think she was my favorite in Gardens, which is, I don't know how popular that is. Same. I don't think it's a very popular opinion, and I don't understand it. Yeah. <laughs> she she definitely has a lot more depth there. And I, my first time through, I didn't really mm, identify with her. But my second and third and fourth time, she absolutely, I think, is one of the most uh, interesting in the first book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Black Diamond, I agree completely. Uh, my second point was uh, uh, about common criticisms and was poor characterization. Yeah. And I really think that mm-hmm. the only time that that is true is in Gardens of the Moon. Because after yes. that, uh, the characters were absolutely the reason why I read the rest of the series. And it has probably half of my favorite characters in fantasy, period. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Erickson famously wrote Gardens like something like 10 years before the rest of the series, and it really shows. He grows a lot between um, Gardens to Dead House Gage, which is the second book. Mm-hmm. I will say I had one difficult moment in early Gardens, and it was the first time I got to a cruppy point of view. <laughs> <laughs> He's an acquired taste. I No, I... I eventually enjoyed it but at the start i had no idea what he was saying yep just no idea i thought i was in a dream sequence (laughs) well aren't you the first time you beat him no that's uh a bit farther on i think right yeah yeah are you sure i I really think the first time that you're it might it might be i i haven't read gardens in a very long time i think that is true he, he meets crawl yeah, he made uh, Kroll, and uh, he's talking to himself in different aspects of himself. He comes along that campfire. To have the first introduction to a character be a schizophrenic dream sequence is a little hard. <laughs> Who speaks as he does in third person. All his mannerisms. All right, anybody that got uh, other common criticisms? Uh, yes. Um, one, uh, one particularly uh, valid criticism I find is uh, the romantic relationships in the series um erickson they're pretty bad yeah erickson has a way of just kind of introducing two characters and then bam they are they are romantically involved and they care more about each other than they have for anybody um it's jarring it sometimes lacks the chemistry of other character relationships he has throughout the series um but uh luckily romance isn't the focus of this uh the series so I was personally able to overlook it, but uh, yeah, it it's not great. It's probably one of the weaker points of the series. Staying away from spoilers, do you think there are good ro- romances in the Malazan books? I don't. Yes. <laughs> I think there is like one or two. Yeah, I could think of one right now. <laughs> I don't think that there are any. There might be zero for my, in my opinion. I struggle to think of one. I think there are a ton of romances in Malazan, and yes. they're portrayed as incredibly significant and important. But I have a real problem feeling that as a reader. There is a certain interracial relationship in uh, book three that I found uh, to be pretty good, but uh, that's about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. That one's definitely up there, but still, I, I, I don't particularly care about it that much. At least, at least with the romance in general, um, there's not a huge focus on them. There's there's a ton, and they get their fair share of page count, but you can not care about the romances and still love the series, as is the case with basically all of us. Yeah, yeah, they don't take up much much page time, which is probably part of the problem which is with part them. Part of the problem, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're definitely just thrown in there sometimes. Well, I think one of the problems is if he was going to flesh out his romances. I mean, he's already accused of being long-winded. 
so it could <laughs> it, it would have i mean if you if you add twenty thousand word count just to add romance maybe that's not the right approach mm. yeah mm. i to a certain degree i think that if you're going to have such deep characterization in other aspects of the characters' lives, and then just never show a good romance. Like not just not just like oh, this is a tertiary character. Oh, this is a secondary character. No, this like this is a primary character, and you just don't show a believable romance. You spend a lot of time about the relationship. You spend a lot of time about them traveling together or whatever, but never make the reader feel invested in the romantic uh, relationship. I think that's a that's a failure. I do think there are actually a couple good ones, but the the reason I like those romances isn't because I I'm invested in them two being in love with each other, but I'm invested in the the conflicts that have arisen because they're together. I feel like Erickson's more in invested in that as well. Yeah. And the ones I'm thinking of aren't even with main characters, really, but they're just it's just a, a different twist on the romance, I think. It ends up being more interesting for the romances. Are there main characters? <laughs> I think there, there are main characters, but there are there isn't a main character. Crocus has a strong romance arc. Yes. Um, and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's Yeah, despite being one of the main ones, it's still a little lacking. It's very teenage. I think that one was captured well, just because you know, and they are what, like sixteen um, at the start. It's yeah, it's every bit as awkward and awful as everyone's teenage relationship is. Absalar is not exactly sixteen, right? Uh, well, <laughs> let's not get into that. <laughs> All right. So, um, I think somebody kind of mentioned earlier another common criticism I hear is that it's too long or it needs an editor. Um, I I think that's it's not it's again it's not a criticism without any merit at all. Um, I think that he could especially have cut down the um, uh, philosophical monologues between characters. Um, at times I feel like that's a bit overdone. Although although I will say at it is the primary charm of the series. I feel like you know, you could have you could have taken out like a few lines here and there, like maybe these characters aren't quite so profound thinkers as uh, Aristotle is. But right. uh, <laughs> yeah. I think the length uh, ties in with one of my other criticisms, which is just the amount of point of view characters. There's just way too many at times, and each book introduces maybe ten new ones, and then you're going to care about some of those much less than others. And I, I think some of those POVs could have been just omitted entirely. But uh, his his use of POV is definitely more unique than other authors. I think the sheer number of POVs really creates some of the depth of the series, and and to omit the the number that he's made made use of, uh, I think that would cheapen the series and make it into something different, into a, a different genre, even possibly than what it is. I agree. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Erickson, a lot, what he does is he introduces a new character, sometimes three quarters through the book, and then immediately makes you invested in that character, like them or understand them, and then he kills them. He does that, <laughs> he does that, he does that in book one, he does that in book ten, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, getting, getting strong new POV characters in book five was so jarring. Yeah. Um... Just comparing it to the other big fantasy series as of yet, that is this scope, um, Wheel of Time. Um, Jordan has a lot of, you know, random characters that are thrown in. Um, Aes Sedai that you don't care about and frankly don't matter. Um, Erickson, I think, avoids a lot of the forgettableness of POVs, or these useless characters, because he makes all of them unique in their own ways um, and have their own certain charm or despicableness. Um, none of them really meld into each other for me. I can't think of a character that, like, you know, it's... I, I could have just replaced them with another character. They all have their own unique aspects. I think there are some exceptions there, personally. Like some, some patriotists in uh, Book 7. 
Like <laughs> they're all pretty similar in my opinion, with a couple quirks that could be changed. Okay. Anybody other got uh, some criticisms? Uh, common criticism is that Ericsson is elitist and tries to lock people out of his series uh, with Gardens of the Moon. Oh, I hate I hate that one. Same. Because of that one word that he used when he said, my books are not lazy. <laughs> yeah. Got that, that irritates me more than anybody. <laughs> yep. In case anybody doesn't know, in the, uh, what would you call it, the introduction to his Gardens of the Moon? Forward, yeah, whatever. Yeah, forward, thank you. In the forward, he says uh, he was talking about publishing Gardens for the first time and how uh, a lot of publishers were not interested because, especially for American audiences, because it was so uh, complicated and vast. And he specifically says that my books are not lazy, and many readers have taken that and interpreted it as him saying, you're not smart enough for my books. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't think that's the case. Or, or if you don't like my books, you're a lazy reader. Yeah. Yeah, which is not what he said. And if anybody's ever heard Erickson talk, I don't think he's that kind of person anyway. No, he's just saying that these are books that require you to invest. And I think that's a very fair thing to say. Um, Malazan is not a series that you're just going to read for level one action. It's There's a lot of it there. Um, but what you're there for is not to watch people punch each other. It's to witness, you know, philosophical debates, um, epic moments of storytelling, um, deep moralizing character moments, and above all, an extensive and richly developed world. With deep, deep history. Yes. Yes. Deep, deep, conflicting history. Um, it's it's very realistic in that way. Like there's a lot of conflicting events, uh, accounts of what happened. People don't remember things well. Um, the historical record is not perfect. Um, it's just like real archaeology and history. There's a lot of confusion. That's that brings me up to my new point. Uh, it's a, a common criticism I see is that it doesn't tie up loose ends. I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> it's still an evolving world with books being added to it. Right, exactly. That, my <laughs> thing is, it doesn't tie up loose ends in the main 10, but if you go to the other side's novels, then uh, you'll get tons of loose ends tied up, and then there's also more to come. So uh, it's kind of like an open point as it stands. Uh, in case any of our listeners don't know, there are currently 23 novels in the Malazan universe. Are there that many? Jeez. <laughs> uh, there's, uh... there's not enough, is what I say. <laughs> there are nine Ian C. Elsamont books, and Whoa. there's 25 if you count novellas. Yes, because they have the yeah. side. Whatever. Yeah, I believe they're 23. And then the this year, there's the new uh, Ian C. Elsamont book coming out, and a, next year is a new uh, Erickson book. Can't wait for that one. A very divisive character. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Uh, well, I I think that uh, for people who are really invested in that, I think that it doesn't tie up loose ends is a legitimate criticism. Although um, maybe some people don't know this, that Erickson and uh, Esselbant are anthropologists uh, originally. And so they have a lot of uh, experience studying history and going over... Uh, historical texts and comparing them and trying to piece together a history. And I think it shows in their work uh, because they have to, they could have many different sources that are conflicting. And I think they did that purposefully in their books so that they could show uh, what it really is like. Yeah. And I think that that was one of my main points here as well, that Erickson is an archeologist and anthropologist, and he's used to having to guess and theorize and extrapolate and he wants his reader to do that as well and that means that you're not always going to know the correct answer to something and you're not always going to know from when something came and where it ended up you know the window that you're in and you can guess where where it come, comes from and where it went erickson does uh explain a good amount though I mean, not everything, of course, as as we're mentioning now, but you'll you'll be you'll have questions about a certain topic, 
And then Erickson will kind of throw in some hints here or there, get some more obvious hints in there, and then all of a sudden he's basically telling you the answer to it. So as long as you have patience, the uh, a lot of the questions do become answered. True. Yeah. But though often the reader knows more than anyone in the story, anyone in yes. the universe. Except for Krupp. <laughs> Krupp and Quick but, Ben and Rake. And the, <laughs> even and the, the reader mules. knows more than like Quick Ben though. Do we? We don't know what Quick yeah. Ben knows. <laughs> we, we don't know what Quick Ben knows, but like you can point to several places in the story and be like, Quick Ben is wrong about this. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in, is it is Midnight Tide's book five? Yes. Um, yeah. Because there we get these we know some of these things from before, and then we get these god and ascendant flashbacks and the story gets filled out a lot more for us than the present day Tista Eater and, and humans. And we know a lot more and we understand their sort of their history and their motivations better than they actually do. When I realized that Midnight Tides was essentially a flashback being told <laughs> around a campfire, an entire book just being a story told around a campfire, in one night um i looked back on the series and i was like oh this is gonna be amazing <laughs> <laughs> midnight ties was when i was when i had my epiphany that malazan was going to be amazing it ended up being my favorite of the first five so sure yeah that's completely fair i think it's my fourth favorite it's, it's my it's my favorite out overall i think yeah. it's my favorite of all of them I think it's completely fair because it's it's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm in the middle of, of my first reread in, what, five years? And I got up to Midnight Tides, and it's my favorite so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Honestly, the way I, the one way I describe it is just it being one of the best village and or origin stories. Hmm. Like, full stop. Yeah. <laughs> I think of it as a modern Shakespearean epic. It is Hamlet in a fantasy universe um, with a billion more characters. Most importantly, T. Hall and Bug. Yeah. <laughs> Those are my favorite characters in the entire series. Most importantly. And the funny thing or embarrassing thing is I didn't realize Erickson had a sense of humor until book five. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. upon rereading, I can see it's there all along, but but I didn't until T. Holland Bug came up. That's when I when he went full slapstick. Um, it's fantastically dry. They live in hilarious poverty, and I'm here for it. <laughs> dry is a good way of describing it, especially Tool. Yes, Tool is very funny. It's literally dry. Yes, <laughs> as bones. <laughs> Um, anybody ever have any common criticisms to talk about? I think no? we're good there. Okay, so uh, let's move on to how we feel about uh, that we don't think is that great about the series. Um, we've already gone over uh, all of my points, except for pacing. I think sometimes the pacing can be a little uh, slow. Not book one, but uh, in some of the later books, the uh, beginning can drag a little bit. I want the magic to be harder. Yes, that's that's the one I wrote down. I really want the magic to be harder because he definitely solves problems with magic fairly often. And in order for that to feel satisfying to me, I want to understand it more. Right. I want to understand yeah. why they couldn't solve other problems with magic. Yeah, because, I mean, there'll be a problem and Erickson will solve it with magic. And uh, it'll be in a way that you, we've never seen before. And it's it's also a way that you have to like wrap your head around because it involves so many different aspects of the magic. So you're 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 put after just like looking in the wiki at four different articles trying to make sense of this one resolution to this issue that was done by magic, and you, you still can't really understand it because how, that's how soft it is. It can just be one soft aspect that just is so soft that it really doesn't make too much sense, but. I'm the kind of person also where I really want to make, make complete sense of it to understand how the magic works in this world to solve that issue. But a lot of times you really just can't make complete sense of it. Yeah. 
I suppose we're we're the Sanderson generation of fantasy, and and we like to understand it in 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 terms of his approach to magic or any kind of system. Everything is detailed, and strength and weaknesses are weighed against each other. And I mean. Sanderson would have written this, uh, lining up each Warren and their strengths, their weaknesses, their aspects, uh, their abilities. Yeah, and <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't work like this here. It's no slightly more haphazard and pulling things out of thin air. I've never been bothered by it personally because, um, while he does use magic to solve certain plot problems. Um, I feel like he always gets there by means of character building and having people grow in the ways that they need to in order to be the kind of person they can be to, uh, that that can solve these problems. Um, it is pretty incredible how um, we don't really understand Warrens anymore at the end of book ten that we like we know a bit more, but we don't know. It's certainly not a allomancy kind of thing where. Um, you know, you, you get the rules explained and everything makes sense and you can go through beat by beat of the fights. Um, it's more of a Warrens are fantastically powerful. You can draw power from other dimensions and beyond that, we don't really know. And I'm okay with it. I think it fits with the tone of the series. I don't think the Sanderson style of doing it would have been very fitting for what Erickson was trying to do. Um, I think that's, I think it gets you lost a bit in the details um but a, a little bit more hardness in the magic would have been nice i agree well i think something about the magic is that uh you you do learn about it little by little it, it, it'll never be hard it never was hard but um even i think you learn a little bit through each book you learn how the warrens are connected you learn where the warrens came from what warrens are associated with what god and what kind of people and uh, even in the Karkinus books, you learn a lot about the Warrens that you didn't know about before. It doesn't make them hard by any means, but I think part of the fun of Malazan is understanding how these things are connected. Yes, it's you understand things from a historical level. You never understand things from a scientific or engineering level in the series. Yeah, sure. But I'm thinking more of... I'm thinking more of uh, a few instances, which I, I don't want to spoil or anything too much, where there will be a problem and the wizards will be like, I can't solve this problem. And then someone says, but wait, you could do this. And then the wizards will be like, oh, yeah, we could do that. <laughs> OK, well, we could talk about it after the uh, <laughs> recording. <laughs> That's just like that just sticks in me a little bit. <laughs> And and then also they never think to do that again. It's just kind of like forgotten. I will confess I'm not sure what you're talking about, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. After the recording, we can. <laughs> yeah. So any, anybody else got any criticisms? Personal criticisms? Well, we sort of touched upon it, but I do think that he tends towards verbosity in some places. And for instance, Carsa Orlong could be named Carsa Overlong because he he, he rambles, <laughs> which is he's quite eloquent for a barbarian. He's a, he's a very eloquent barbarian. I I mean, that's why we love him though. His his people are the superior race. It's weird, <laughs> but it's true. I think I think they they they're very they're very smart people, uh, and they're also very stupid people. It's very inbred. Yes, you can say that about a lot of the characters. <laughs> um, that's actually uh, pretty close to one of my criticisms. Um, I feel like he has a lot of very, very deep thinkers. Um, I mentioned it a little bit before. Not everyone's Aristotle. Um, it, a shocking amount of people seem to be very willing to be introspective to a degree that almost nobody it seems to me, in the real world is. Um, it takes me out a little bit when um, you have your happy-go-lucky soldier who just spends you know, a page or two talking about the ethical ramifications of whatever they're doing. Um, 
I don't have a huge problem with it. I think it ultimately adds to the story, but uh, it does take the believability down just a notch. Mm. Just, just the sheer amount, right? Because, yeah. I mean, Fiddler's wonderful, right? Oh, yeah, Fiddler's amazing. But you have, like, so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. You've got these deep philosophers who somehow eh, make some stupid mistakes sometimes. <laughs> And that's part of the point, part of the point of the of the book, right? Yes, absolutely. So like, Quick Ben is not infallible. He's not God. He's not uh he's not Gandalf. As much as you he wants you to think he is. <laughs> yeah. But uh I, I think another strength in that same vein is you know, there there will be a slave, for example, who is a super deep thinker, and it is unbelievable, but also uh I think it touches on the themes of the series with how this person's very intelligent, but because of his upbringing, because of his place that he was born into in life, he doesn't have a chance to really thrive. You're talking about uh, Udinus, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, One of my favorite characters. Right. And I I think that just kind of touches on the themes also where there's inequality aspect there and just, yeah, that's about it. I don't want to say that that a slave can't be a deep philosophical thinker. There's many examples of that in history. Yeah, for sure. And just, yeah, but I mean, you don't really know. You you assume he doesn't have the educational background, um, but it, it just comes as a shock to the reader, I think. I would, I would think for yeah. most people that he's just this intelligent, where he's more intelligent than honestly most characters we've seen, despite having no real educational upbringing yep. and just doing housework his entire life. Innate intelligence is a thing. Yeah, and it's just yeah. it's unfortunate that because of the life that he was born to, he didn't really have a, a chance to to really flex that as he should have. Yeah, or maybe he does. He's a tragic character for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the <laughs> one of the many. <laughs> one of the many. One of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is uh, Book of the Fallen for a reason. Speaking of other things we don't like about the series. Um, it's just so sad. It's just so so sad, mm-hmm. and yes. that's why that's why I've been reluctant to reread it. Um, that actually, uh, that actually reminds me. Um, uh, one of the common criticisms of the series is um, the extent of the horrific, horrific events that Erickson writes about. Um, he has characters getting raped. He has characters getting mutilated. He has characters getting tortured. Basically, if you can think of a horrible thing to happen to a character. Um, he has it. And characters condemned to an eternity of undeath. Yes. Um, and a lot of people say, well, why does he do this? Um, it's gratuitous. It's uh, gross. Um, you know, um, why, would he, why would he write about these horrible, horrible things? Um, and if you guys would, uh, <laughs> would be okay with it, I actually have his response to this uh, up on my computer. I could read it out for you. Sure. Yes, please. Hmm. Um, so in relation to a particularly horrible, um, event in the story, he faced a lot of criticism and he came out with a response. Um, the question that arises is why did I have to drag you all through such a horrific event? There are so many ways to answer this. I don't know where to start. I suppose we can, can begin with dispensing with the notion that fantasy as I write it is escapist literature. It isn't for me. The fantasy world is a simulacra a curious reflection of our own real world. And the thing that binds the two is the human condition. I would think that, after almost nine complete novels, this much should be readily evident by now. I use the invented universe to talk about this one. And no, I don't think this is particularly unique or in any way exceptional. Even in novels where writers have clearly not consciously considered the relationship between the invented world of their fiction and the real world in which they live, they all end up saying something about that relationship, even when they don't mean to. This is one of the topics I find myself addressing more and more at cons and other public venues when we talk about the genre. The proliferation of gratuitous violence, not in recent, not just in recent fantasy fiction, but on film and in television, where heroes assume a pathological indifference to those they kill, or those who die as an indirect consequence of their actions. And the way in these, which these fictions are both a reflection and a potential affirmation of a kind of acceptable sociopathy in modern society. But this topic deserves much more space than I'll be providing here, so we'll move on. Last evening, I had a conversation with my my wife on our topic here, and the online discussion would soon initiate. 
She has not read the novel, so I gave a brief description of the scene and explained to her that discussions on the tour reread have already included comments in indicating readers' revulsion, rejection, dismissal, and or anger at the scene in question. Coincidentally, she had early, earlier that day been listening to a CBC radio program in discussing Joseph Boyden's novel, The Arenda, in which scenes of torture between First Nations tribes at around the time of first contact were written in graphic, unblinking detail. These descriptions of torture proved controversial. Um, in any case, my wife responded with something like this. When you come upon a scene like that, you read it and you read it for every victim of torture in the world today. And no matter how horrified or appalled or disgusted you feel, nothing you're experiencing in the reading of those scenes can compare to what the victims of torture felt and will feel. And that is why you read it. You don't turn away or hide your eyes. You read it because the truth and those very real, real victims out there in our own world disturb no less. Hmm. And that's why I wrote it too. But this brings me to a few comments I've noted already, in which the term gratuitous was used to describe the scene and its aftermath. That is a term I object to in every possible way. In fact, even the label thrown so casually at me and that scene in particular leaves me incensed. If you consider the above position and take note of the flat reportorial style I used in recounting the event, there is nothing gratuitous in there. Nothing at all. I wrote out what needed to be there to make explicit and un unambiguous what was going on. In terms of psychic distance, I pulled right back as far as I could go until the voice ceased to be mine and it ceased to belong to a narrator. All of this is the opposite of gratuitous and leads me to wonder if those who readily use that label even understand what it means. Gratuitous violence revels in details often under the guise of being re realistic, but it betrays its delight into the telling. It is violence recounted without purpose beyond the spectacle itself. The language begins to gush, redolent with excitement. The psychic distance rushes inward, invites you into the glory of mayhem, of pain and suffering, of the most base emotions of vengeance, malice, and the hunger for destruction. I could provide, I could offer plenty of examples of gratuitous violence in popular fiction, in film and television. But really, I can't be bothered. It's out there, and it's legion. As always, an author seeks a covenant with the reader. It begins, from the author's point of view, with a promise. And that promise is implicit in the opening scenes of any work or series. It would be hard to argue that it was in any way coy or ambiguous with the opening chapters of Gardens of the Moon, the first novel in the Malazan series. But that promise, if left to stand alone, unbound to any guiding purpose or intent, unbound to any deliberate thematic position, would indeed have arrived in the coldest of tones, from which all manner of gratuitous shit could be expected to follow. We are now nine books into the series, and the discussion of themes reappear again and again in this reread, with considerable unity in the re recognition of those themes. And it is that recognition that underscores the rest of my promise in this covenant I seek with you. The language of redemption is compassion. Compassion is all about understanding, and understanding is all about seeing, clear-eyed, all the things we would, perhaps, rather not see. And to be clear here, seeing is all we're doing. I suspect that very few of us have has ever experienced the torture of the kind that debilitates with purpose. No one who has ever survived soul beating can ever again walk without experiencing pain. And yes, they are out there in our world right now. Our experience is vicarious, but then that is what reading novels is all about. Torture is going on right now. People are being maimed. Some will die. Others will live with pain and trauma for the rest of their lives. And if you're at all like me, you feel helpless to do anything about it. But one thing you do have a choice over, you can turn away, cover your eyes. You can cry out, I didn't agree to this. You can even, with indignation, get angry with me and say, why did you do this to me? You can, after, after, above all, dismiss the whole thing as trivial. It's just a fantasy novel, after all, written by someone most people have never heard of and never will. I didn't write that scene for you. I wrote it for them. And I asked the same of you, read it for them. As my wife said, whatever we feel is as nothing compared to what these victims have and will go through. And in the grand scheme of things, our brief disquiet seems to me now as it did then, a most pathetic cry in this vast wilderness. Um, so that's most of what he wrote there. Um, and yeah, uh, it's powerful stuff. Um, yep. It's a perfect yeah. reply to whatever he was replying to. I mean, academically and intellectually, I completely understand that. But emotionally, when I look 
back and and think about doing a reread of this 10 book series of pain and torture i i struggle that's natural yeah yeah it's horrifying stuff um but i think it is important to experience these kinds of things and obviously if there are victims of horrible events that have happened to them um rape or torture or death of close people near them um in bad ways um then you know it, it might be too much for them but for people who are merely uncomfortable with these topics i do encourage them to think about why why that is and if witnessing these kinds of events um is too much because they are real they do happen and it's important not to forget that so um are we ready to move on to the next i think so yes <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for that ashman that's one of my favorite things that uh erickson's written mm -hmm. definitely the next part is uh what we feel sets the series apart from others and uh i'll start with the uh, scale i can't think of a single series uh that is as large as and as epic as malazan the only thing that comes close, in my opinion, is a wheel of time, and still that doesn't compare. Yeah, no, the scale is magnificent. It is uh, the most epic of fantasy you can find. Including multiple completely fleshed-out continents. Yes, rarely do you even get that. Like, Wheel of, wheel of Time has uh, Randland and Shan Chan. <laughs> It's, it's got maybe two continents, one of which is entirely off-screen. Yes. And I think part of the reason why it's a, the, the scope is as it is is because um, the series isn't really a story about a group of characters or even about a certain uh, conflict. It's just the history of a world during a certain period of time with, with, uh, with emphasis on the world. So it does cover all those, all those continents. And... Uh, I mean, I, I think that's just different than any other series. I don't know anything else that uh, has has the depth of Malazan, except for certain very large sci-fi series. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, like Star Trek has equivalent depth with Malazan. Mm -hmm. Probably significantly more. Star Trek, Star Wars. Um, but it really takes something of that scale to get beyond Malazan. Yeah, Malazan is uh, Malazan is two people writing. Um, Star Trek and Star Wars are hundreds of people over decades. Hundreds of people, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean that that's one of the things that sets it apart and is a strength. But but it also goes back to one of the weaknesses that the world is too fragmented. And we don't get enough. And I mean, maybe if he writes fifty books, then we'll have enough. I think that's a good, uh, good problem to have, though. People are asking for more. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> I think the timeline also is is part of that. There's is a fairly fully realized hundred thousand year, multiple hundred thousand year scale, and uh, you can kind of you have a lot of events in there that are all significant. Absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think of other series. I think I have I have two. Uh, Ellie Modisit's Recluse series covers about like a two thousand year timeline, uh, with twenty books in it wow. across multiple continents. Hmm. Um, and Miles the Vorkosigan saga covers three generations of characters, uh, but makes references to events uh, hundreds of years in the past. Okay. Um, and covers multiple star systems. I'll throw in uh, Julian May's uh, Saga of the Exiles and um, the Galactic Milieu, which covers two distinct time periods, plus references a third, and they're millions of years apart. Wow. Yeah. I'm starting that. I'm going to be starting that soon. Oh, I'm looking forward to your <laughs> comments. Awesome. So anybody else got any other points about uh, what sets it apart? Uh, the depth the character depth um we've talked about how there's so many point of view characters and the thing is we have the primary characters and they're all fleshed out and they have very deep characterization but so do the secondary characters and the tertiary characters 
and even a bunch of the quaternary characters, which don't exist in other other book series. <laughs> yes, and not just the characters them like themselves and their development, but the development of non-romantic relationships relationships between them. They have a depth that you just don't see in most uh, most writing these days. Yeah, if you like bromances, this is the series for you. <laughs> yes. Great bromances. Yeah, best uh, bromances around. Between some very different people. I love I love Akarium and Mapo. I as I said previously, I love T Hall and Bug. Talk tool. Those those are probably my favorites. Ikarium. Uh <laughs> yeah. Well, um I think what else sets it apart is uh the races, I think, are pretty uh unique might might they're unique, yeah. They're unique, yeah. Well, a lot often they're uh, different takes on an old idea, like uh, dark elves. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> the the Tyst, uh, Andy, Eder, and what's the other one? Leosan. Leosan. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of elfy, but also not elfy. <laughs> but mm-hmm. my personal mm-hmm. favorite, uh, I don't know if everyone agrees with me, but are the Jaghut. Yes. <laughs> who are? Very good. They probably look like large. Uh, Warcraft orcs, but uh, they are isolationist uh, philosopher, uh, powerful beings with the Engineers. greatest sense of humor. <laughs> I think I prefer the Imas. <laughs> okay. Yes, the Talan Imas are my favorite fantasy race, besides the Elves and Lord of the Rings. Yep. I, I love the I love the Andy. But I think the Amas are are the most uh, they they stuck in my memory the most. That like Can like describe for our visual, our visually. Uh, the Amas are an immortal race of skeletons at this point, skeletons and little bits of flesh, um, that have stuck on because they completed the ritual of Telan. and. A lot of them seem to regret that decision, given their new millennia of experience. Yeah, they were cursed to undeath because of it. Yep. And they're originally proto-humans. Yeah, they're originally like Neanderthals. There's a whole lot of themes explored with them. Mm-hmm. Yes, futility, um, regret on a massive scale, um, tragedy. Yes. Um, Ancient mistakes. Yeah, no, the Tla- the Tlanamas are, yeah, they are tragic. They are um, still very human. Um, they are about as relatable as you can get for three hundred thousand year old skeletons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the races are definitely a standout in the series, and there are more than I could count. And inside each race are also subgroups of different uh, people. Like there are tons of different types of humans. There are many different types of uh, imas. There are many different types of the taist. And I think that goes into the uh, the shows and and dragons. Yes, dragons, um, lizard men, short-tailed lizard men, and, <laughs> and, and like, long-tailed uh... lizard men. Yeah, long-tailed lizardmen and uh, many jointed freaks. <laughs> I'm not sure how else to describe the uh, fork gorilla sale. And a lot of half-bloods. A lot of half-bloods. And what do the sale look like? Really, I, I never understood that. I'm not sure. I always thought like, uh, yeah, tall, like kind of like uh, you know the traditional Martian-like guys. I I kind of picture them like that, like hairless. Um, completely smooth with like a lot of limbs or sorry a lot of joints in their limbs yeah there's a lot of fan out there that's pretty faithful to that description i pictured fairly uh skinny yeah yes yeah yeah (laughs) um what also sets malazan apart i feel is um the way that the good and bad are conveyed um at the start in Gardens of the Moon, um, I actually didn't know who to root for. There was pretty simple setup. There is an empire trying to take over the world, and then there is a 
small city-state that is resisting them for the moment. And throughout the book, I kept flip-flopping between them. I didn't know if I was on board with the Malazan Empire. I still don't know if I'm on board with the Malazan Empire. Um, I didn't know if I wanted Dirhujistan to be uh, uh, independent. Um, the nature of the villains is extraordinarily complex. There are some who are just bad people, but they are few and far between. Um, for the most part, everyone thinks they're the good guy, and for very good reasons. Um, everyone and everything has a reason in the Malazan world. And I think isn't isn't that one of the sort of main points of the whole series? I mean, for well, without spoiling too much, for a lot of the series, something like seven books, we or I eight books, we think we know who the main baddie is. Uh, and we don't. Right. I mean, I don't think the main baddie is ever... Uh, this is getting a little spoilery. Yeah, let's just do <laughs> uh, that. Yeah, we probably shouldn't go there. Maybe do we, we ever really this. know who the main baddie is? I mean, it's not a physical entity, in my opinion. It, it's certain aspects of human nature that sure are trying sure. to be fought against. Injustice. Yeah. All but, but I, th- I, I think speaking of good and bad is too simplistic because it's more about the gray areas in between. How far do you go in each direction and why? Yes, I agree completely. And for what reasons and how everyone else reacts to that. Nothing is simple. What guides your actions? And also we see that people's motivations are when we know the backstory, we don't. We see why they're acting wrong, but they think they're acting right. Yeah, uh, definitely, it's a lot of that, and and that builds the story. And I think that's that's one of the unique things that our our characters are moving in one direction, and we know they should be moving in another, uh, but we understand why they're doing what they're doing. But it creates a lot of tension in our expectations because we want them to do one thing we think that's the right thing to do and they don't because they have a totally different backstory yes absolutely it's uh erickson takes the concept of uh no one thinks they're the bad guy um and he just runs with it um this is a tragedy it's not it's not a tale of good versus evil there's nothing simple in malzen Right. So, uh, does anybody have anything else that sets it apart? I have one more that I think is fairly important, and uh, Erickson kind of touched on it when uh, that passage was read about how uh, Malzan is a simulacra of the real world, kind of an inventive universe to talk about our world. Because I think what sets it apart is how much Malzan has to say compared to any other series, and particularly with its real-world analogs and philosophy, we get uh, topics that kind of have the analogs to weapons of mass destruction, PTSD, religion, history, and the list goes on and on. And each book has different ones that it touches on, as well as some overlap. And I think that um, there's really just a lot to think about when it comes to our world compared to Malazan. And uh, it's just one of the things I found most interesting about it. Yeah, absolutely. Erickson wants to say something with every book he writes with every character interaction he has um everything is for a purpose and it it shows and, and is is that one of the reason that there are so many criticisms of, of that particular well i mean a lot of people read books to be entertained they don't want to think about the real world they don't want to think about right or wrong they want to escape. And that was in his talking about escapism. Uh, and he doesn't want that. He wants to write literature that's dealing with real world problems. Uh, is that a problem for us as fantasy readers? It's not a problem for me. As long as you go with it, with the right mindset to Malazan, um, that it's not going to be an escapist read. Um, and I think, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah, there's nothing wrong I with think wanting you can that. Still escape in Malazan, for sure. Well, yeah. if you read the the layer one, I mean, if you're just on the hack and slash, then fine. Yeah. 
you and can that, see there is some fine hack and slash. Yeah, there is big battles. There is cool magic. <laughs> that's one of the best battles in the first, what, 30 pages? <laughs> <laughs> one of the biggest, yeah. I don't think it's the best written, though. Especially because we have no idea who anyone is. <laughs> <laughs> Going back and rereading it, I uh, I find a lot of appreciation for that particular scene. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of knowledge you can bring back to that scene in a reread. I'm sure. And a lot of uh, a lot of consequences that it sets up, not for not just for Gardens of the Moon, but every single book after. Oh yeah. yeah. Things just Absolutely. keep coming up. I think it's a perfect segue to uh, why we love the series and. Uh... One of the big reasons is the, the puzzle aspect of the series. So I'm sure Erickson has written the series as a, you know, a setup for. He, he wrote it with rereads in mind. And most anybody who's read the series more than once will tell you that it's better on the second time through. And I've read it multiple times, and each time it gets better and better because the first time through you're piecing these things together and you don't know what's going on, but you think you might have an idea. And once you understand those things, you can piece it together more and understand the world better, and so on and so forth. It it, it does get better. That's definitely one that I had down. Um, I remember I was reading House of Change, House of Chains, which is book four in the series. For anyone listening that isn't aware, um, I remember I was reading about halfway. And I was like, "Wait a second, I'm understanding this pretty well." And it was like relatively the first time where I really. I, I was just going page by page, not having too many questions. I was absorbing everything. And I just love how the the series becomes easier and more satisfying to read the farther you get. There'll be just a minor conversation between two characters that I either didn't expect to speak together or I didn't expect them to speak on a certain topic. And I just, it just oozes satisfaction because everything you read up until that point can uh, change how you process this one conversation. And you kind of feel that as you as you read the series and it happens so often. Um, and that's just part of the complexity where you you just get better at reading the series as you go on. And I think it's it's one of the reasons why I, I really enjoyed it more and more as as the books progressed. And there's also the mystery that's unveiled that is always a, it was great to read. And mystery is whether it's plot or character focused or even just the magic system. Anyone have anything else? I like seeing the strength of the characters. I like seeing their tenacity, resilience, compassion. I like seeing them overcome obstacles, or at the very least, face obstacles um, with the courage and conviction and uh, humanity. Yeah, I agree completely. That's a, I think a, it, it follows from the horrific events that he writes about. Um, his characters do get to see rock bottom and they, they live at rock bottom a lot of the time and that they manage to rise from that. It is epic in every sense of the word. Um, yeah, that's another reason why I love it. Um, all these terrible things are happening, but they're never, I never feel like uh, it's only that. I feel, I've always told people that Malazan is about uh, the worst and the best of humanity. And the bad things are never looked at and said, oh, well, we can't do anything about it. It's always uh, balanced with wonderful, wonderful acts of humanity and compassion. And I'm not a crier. Uh, well, I'm not not a crier, but I cry. <laughs> <laughs> but I cry a lot when I read these books. And it's it's good. <laughs> it definitely touches a piece of the soul that's kind of hidden in a sense because it like you it was a very great point that you said where it, it touches on the, the best and worst of humanity and it comes up in ways that you want you don't expect as you read and it kind of brings out something in you that you weren't you didn't see coming yeah um one of probably my favorite thing about the series is i think reading the series with the right intentions and with the right amount of introspection makes you a better person I think this is very one of the very few fantasy series out there that it has fundamentally changed how I look at the world and how I interact with people. Um, Me as well. One of the largest themes is compassion in the series. And, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, you here and Fen read the quote on it. Yeah, um, I was waiting for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it, 
it changed how I saw everything in my life. Uh, this is probably the most often quoted from the book. It's from book three. I won't give any spoilers, but uh, here it goes. We humans do not understand compassion. In each moment of our lives, we betray it. I, we know of its worth, yet in knowing, we then attach to it a value. We guard the giving of it, believing it must be earned. Compassion is priceless in the truest sense of the word. It must be given freely in abundance. I got chills. Yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah. As I mentioned in the before we start recording, it's probably one of my favorite quotes in literature that I've read. To to echo Ashaman, I also had everything in my life. Every Yeah, it it changed the way I view the world. <laughs> Deeply, profoundly, and irrevocably, Malazan changed the way that I view the world. Yeah, I think that's a great point for both of you that brought it up. And I mean, I love other fantasy series, but not for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, um, it teaches you empathy on a scale that no other series does. Um, I've learned good lessons from many other series, and I always go into a fantasy book wanting to not only have a good time, but learn lessons from my own life. And Malazan did that more than anything else. Shall we move on to our next uh, area? I think we shall. All right. So this next one is who would we recommend it to or not recommend it to? I would. I was really unaware these people existed uh, until fairly recently, but I would not recommend it for people who only enjoy single point of view books. <laughs> <laughs> I have that one written down as well. <laughs> I would not recommend it to people who are looking for, um, like Eric said, a lazy read. Sometimes I get it. Like people, that's what you want. You want to escape into a book. Um, but uh, if you are looking to just escape, this is not the series for you. Yeah, the, the people that I recommend it to, it kind of touches on everything we've talked about already. Um, but for one, people who like to think about the world we live in, I would definitely recommend it to people who like huge series as we've mentioned and then people who i have written down that people who like dark series but also as we recently mentioned uh it touches on the the darkest and brightest parts of humanity so i would say both and uh i would also uh recommend it to people uh who like military science fiction or fantasy yeah if you like mm -hmm. black company you'll probably like this yeah absolutely he gets the battles well, I'm not sure if they if they're gotten right. I'm not a military historian, but uh, they are very good. More than the battle, though, I think the the relationships inside the uh... it's the it's the relationships, really. Yeah, great camaraderie. It's about it's about being part of uh, an army. Yes, absolutely. I would not recommend it to people who only listen to audiobooks. Yeah. Mm, yes, you need to be able to flip back and forth between the pages. <laughs> You also need to get the character names, <laughs> many, many, <laughs> and place names. Yeah, yeah, all the fiction names. It requires an. Erickson is not; he's not a writer who st uh, shies away from apostrophes. <laughs> no, he's not. <laughs> uh, I, I would recommend it to those who like uh, subverting fantasy tropes, because uh, Erickson's constantly doing that. He's talked about yes, that at length. Definitely. Yeah, he subverts the noble savage, he subverts the evil empire, he subverts pretty much any trope you can name in fantasy. And if you're one of those readers who confidently proclaims that you can predict every outcome in every book you read, um, I would put Malazan 4 as a challenge, because I sure didn't. <laughs> yeah. So does, does that mean we should recommend it to people who have read a lot of fantasy and know all the tropes? Yes, I think so. I, I think I think you should never recommend Malazan to someone who's just getting into fantasy. I agree, for sure. I agree with the caveat that um, I think this is a great series for people interested in history or philosophy as well. Yeah, Possibly. there's a lot to love. Possibly, I mean, India from ten very big books seems to be enjoying it, and and she's read like Twilight, and that's it. 
<laughs> I mean, I mean, I started listening to ten variable books like a week ago or two, and I've only gotten through the uh, gardens episodes. She's not low. She's not loving it so far. <laughs> she, she, she starts to like it more. <laughs> I'm not saying people can't like it. I'm just saying that the likelihood of them liking it is pretty low. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The That's percentage fair. chance is going to be a lot lower with non-experienced fantasy readers. Yeah. Yeah. I think you'll need to put in a lot more work if you're a non-fantasy reader. I had a thought about who would like it, but as I haven't read this book completely myself, and it's been a few years, uh, you might disagree with me, but I would think that people who read the entire Silmarillion and made sense of it would maybe like this. Absolutely. I agree. Yes. Um, yeah, reading Silmarillion and reading this, you get a pretty similar feel, I think. Yeah. I think that people who... Uh... People who read sci-fi are more equipped to read Malazan, I think, because often in sci-fi you're put into this completely new world with a lot of jargon or technology that you don't understand, and it's slowly revealed over the course of the book. And I think gardens especially, uh, people who do that might be more equipped to understand it immediately. Yeah, fantasy and sci-fi are different in that aspect. Fantasy tends to help the reader a lot more than sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. But the difference is that, well, in my view, Ericsson doesn't draw attention to his inventions the way a lot of fantasy does, or science fiction, sorry. A lot of science fiction will, well, cursive or uh, somehow, well, underline the new things, the inventions. Ericsson is just using them and letting you experience them yourself and making sense of them as you go. Yeah, in case uh, some of our listeners don't know, there are several different types of magic systems in Melazon, and <laughs> understanding yes. them is not easy. Understanding them, I think, is mostly futile. <laughs> Just mostly uh, futile. buckle up and enjoy the ride. <laughs> <laughs> All right, does anyone have anything else to add? I think I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah, I think I said what I needed to say. All right. Um, I hope for our listeners, it's given them an idea whether or not they'd like to try out the Malazan book. And I would love for them to try it because I just like talking about it. <laughs> we always need more Malazan readers in the world. <laughs> yes. We need more people in the Ericsson channel on Discord, though actually plenty of people talk in that channel. I think it's mostly <laughs> us. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So uh, how should we sign off? Um, thank you for listening. That works. Yeah. Okay. Um, goodbye. <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Later. Thanks for listening. Thank you and good night.